this week on the Backtable Podcast. The biggest caveat here is this is a kind of technique that's meant for a very niche group of patients. This is a very personal topic for me. My dad had a type A aortic dissection when I was in high school, and he had just a ascending repair back then. Uh, and then he still had like the rest of the aorta dissected from beyond the subclavian all the way down into his iliacs. And it was a tough kind of recovery. It's a big surgery, but yeah. he recovered very well from it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform or even our website. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and keep up with the latest updates and give us feedback through comments. With over 500,000 patients treated globally, Impact Admiral Drug Coated Balloon is the market-leading DCB for treatment of femoral popliteal disease. Learn more about how Impact Admiral DCB can affect reintervention rates for patients with PAD by visiting medtronic.com backslash five-year DCB. I'm Sabine Dond, an IR in Los Angeles, California, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Daniel Hahn, a superstar vascular surgeon and a great friend of mine from Mount Sinai in New York. Welcome, man. Sabine, thank you so much for the invite and that introduction. I know when we're not recording, you never, ever call me a superstar vascular surgeon. So it's <laughs> good. I could see the kind of flair you're putting on for your podcast. No, no, that's totally true, man. You're a superstar and it's, it's always great seeing you. Last time we hung out was about two years ago at Western Angio and it was just a pleasure. But um, today our topic is going to be about how to tackle false lumen perfusion in, in the setting of chronic dissections. And before we get into that, I wanted our listeners to know a little bit more about you. You know, how long have you been at Sinai? What's your practice like? And what does make you that superstar vascular surgeon? <laughs> well, thanks again to Sabine and the entire Backtable team for the invite. I've been a longtime listener of your podcast. I don't listen to too many medical podcasts. Most of the stuff I listen to is like stuff you should know on, you know, my Apple podcast, but I really enjoy the Backtable series, particularly when I see some names that I recognize that come on. I know Dr. Orko had a fantastic session with, uh, your interview with you for type B aortic dissections, where he covered a lot of great material, you know, some which may be redundant, but hopefully a lot that we can add to today. And then whenever I see names like Kumar Madassari, Srini Tumula, it, it always gets me excited to listen to those episodes. So it's a real pleasure for me to be here. I've been at Mount Sinai now going on 16 years. That's, it's the only medical home that I've ever known actually. So I went there. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I went there for medical school where I found excellent mentors who kind of essentially guided my uh, specialty. I mean, to this day, I tell everybody, well, my wife now tells everybody that the, the reason I'm a vascular surgeon or the fault, the person whose fault it is that I'm a vascular surgeon is Dr. Marin and Dr. Ferries, because they were people that I met during my medical school career that essentially reshifted me from, you know, other things I was interested in, you know, I was thinking about pursuing ENT potentially thinking about pursuing orthopedics, even considered interventional radiology at one point with amazing mentorship we have at Sinai. But ultimately the mentorship kept me to vascular surgery as a specialty. I went there for my residency and stayed on as an attending. I'm going on my sixth year as a vascular surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital now. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I think mentorship is a huge part of, of where we all end up. I mean, it's the same for me and 
it's funny to think about all the stuff you thought about what you would go into and then what you end up and it's, it always works out in the end. Yeah. So how much of your practice, you know, now being six years in is aortic work as opposed to other vascular pathology? Yeah. I mean, I think when you look at the prevalence of vascular disease in general, there's just so much of the other things, right? Peripheral vascular disease and wound care is still the predominant portion of my practice. Dialysis access and management takes up a certain amount as well. Probably aortic pathologies and dissections probably comprise somewhere around 15% to 20% of my practice, which has steadily grown over the past couple of years. It's an area that I'm very passionate about that I really enjoy. So it's been good to see kind of grow over time. And I guess with some more increasing referral patterns in the area, we've seen more aortic pathologies kind of come to us, which has been great. Yeah, I know. Sinai is, is really a, a big referral center. I mean, people will just send, you know, the most complex stuff to you guys to just fix, you know? It's been, it's actually been a, a fantastic thing over the past couple of years because Sinai will train many of the vascular surgery fellows, residents who then go out into different hospitals around the area. So basically all the relatively straightforward and even the more complex aneurysms get treated in the community hospitals around us and they do an excellent job with it. And then when they come to their wits end about certain cases <laughs> that they're like, oh, we don't know what else to do for this. These are the ones that get shipped into Mount Sinai. So you get the hardest of the hard. Yeah, we get some interesting ones. That's for sure. Yeah. How much would you say do you treat aortic pathology via an endo approach or surgical or hybrid? We have a very great relationship with multiple specialties here, IR, uh, interventional cardiology, as well as cardiothoracic surgery. So a lot of these cases get discussed in a multidisciplinary conference before we kind of proceed to anything, uh, which has been a real breath of fresh air, especially when you hear about some turf wars or something like this in other institutions. I think I'm pretty blessed to be working in a place where people are working very well with each other. I will say that we are, especially for thoracic pathology, thoracic aortic pathologies in particular, we're doing a lot of endo and cardiothoracic surgery in particular has kind of signed on to that because they see some of the earlier turnaround and easier recoveries for some of these patients. So they've actually been bigger advocates, even sometimes to the point where, you know, we have to turn, <laughs> turn around to cardiothoracic and say, I'm not so sure that's a great endo case. Yeah, that's great. That's great that you have the, uh, the multidisciplinary conference too. You know, I work with one of the guys that you have, have trained and, and uh, he always tells me how great all the services work together. Do you guys do cases together with other specialties like interventional radiology and interventional cardiology? At times, I think, you know, those get planned way in advance. Um, you know, actually a couple months ago, I think Bravo Patel and I did a iliac branch endovascular case together for a patient that he's been following for a very long time and he knows. Um, a lot of my thoracic aorta cases we will do in conjunction with Gabe Deluzo from CT Surgery, who's a mm -hmm. good friend who also operated on my dad, <laughs> you know, so. Wow. Yeah. So we have a very good partnership where luckily I think there's less focus about who's getting credit for what case. I think we bring a lot of different kind of eyes and different kinds of specialty to that case. So, you know, we double scrub fairly often. Yeah, that's great. Well, good. Well, let's kind of go into this topic. By first, I think it'll help us with our listeners to talk about a little bit of terminology. And uh, one of the things, I mean, right in the, in the title of our talk, it's false lumen. Like what, what's the false lumen? What's true lumen? 
Yeah, I think if you go back to one of the other episodes, Dr. Arco came on and talked about a lot of aortic dissections and what the definitions were. Uh, as we know, aortic dissections means that there's a tear in the aorta where the intimal flap gets raised. So there's space between the intima and the media and blood is now flowing both into the actual lumen it was supposed to go into, as well as this false lumen in between the intima and media that was falsely created when there was a blood pressure spike that led to an intimal tear that's allowing blood to go underneath there. It's not a lumen that's meant to exist, but yet it's one that gets perfused very easily, oftentimes because it lacks all three walls of the aorta. So, uh, you know, the blood will follow the path of least resistance. And oftentimes these patients will have a very compressed true lumen and a very expanded false lumen. Many times when you look at patients with aortic dissection, because of the high pressure that's going into that false lumen. It always intrigued me. Why is the true lumen so small compared to the false lumen? You think the heart is pumping into the true lumen and so the pressure should overcome. So why is that on, on CT that that true lumen looks like, you know, one quarter or what one sixth the size of the false lumen? Yeah. You know, it probably because of the way that the flap came up, you know, a lot of the times when there's a hypertensive strike, hypertensive um, spike, and then a portion of the intima gets raised, probably a big portion of the intima does get raised where it becomes a literal flat door. Like when you, like I, when you go mm -hmm. through a screen door and all the blood is going through that one area preferentially than the other. And it's mostly when you look at some of the flow dynamic models and the MR for a, you know, aorta and yeah. you have to see what kind of direction blood flows. It's not, especially when you go around the aortic arch where majority of these kind of originate from, it's not a linear middle of the vessel kind of flow, most of the time it will hug that greater curvature before it comes down. So if that's where the flap originates, it will preferentially fill that space. So, you know, we're talking about it originate where the, the flap originates. So those are like entry tears and exit tears. Is there anything about, you know, is there any number? Can one person just have one or two? Is there a maximum number of tears and a location that gives you a favorable, or unfavorable outcome? It's a tough question to answer. Probably there's a lot more than we think. You know, there's generally one dominant entry tear in a lot of these aortic cases. But what we do know is there's a lot of communication between the true and the false lumen, either through multiple tears or through fenestrations. As the intima comes up, the holes where the side branches or other blood vessels used to be, they all act as a connection point between mm. the true and the false lumen. So it's not necessarily that that's another tear per se. It could be. But a lot of the times you'll also have fenestrations and communications between the true and the false lumen. It's interesting. You mentioned like a exit tear in addition to an entry tear. I'm not really sure it's a term that we use that commonly, but certainly there is a portion of the, you know, dissection where it just tends to end, right? So where the intima is no longer being ripped off the media and that varies significantly from person to person. It's hard to predict how the aorta is going to rip and where it's going to stop ripping. Yeah, sometimes that can be above the celiac or go down all the way into the pelvis. Is it a, this quote unquote exit area then? Is, is that just a simply a fenestration that, that was taken off from, from one of these side branches or, or what's the physiology there? Uh, I think it's just at a point where the pressure is just like not propagating enough for you to continue it. tearing it down. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, we look at these dissections, this intimal flap on a CT, it looks paper thin and it looks like it's just something you can push out of the way. When you've opened these in, in, in an open, I mean, what, what is that tear like? Is it, is, it, is it paper thin or is it like leather? It depends on the chronicity. And this goes back to like the whole 
definition in terms of time frame for acute dissections, right? So you have the hyperacute dissections that are less than 24 hours, the acute dissections that's between one to one day to 14 days, the subacute between 15 days to 90 days, and then after 90 days, you consider a chronic dissection. If you're getting something and you're going in because you're operating for a hyperacute or acute dissection, it is paper thin. It is it is the diameter of an intima, you know, the acute intima that kind of been raised, that's been flapping around. That's what you're looking at. The longer you go out from the initial insult, it becomes pretty thick. And if you end up going and operating on chronic aortic dissections, they're thicker than the vessel wall sometimes. It's a, it's a gigantic septum that oftentimes won't move whatsoever. Yeah, that's what I've heard. In the chronic setting, it can be like this thick leather that we don't really appreciate on, on imaging. Yeah. Now, we throw this term aortic remodeling around a lot when we talk about treating uh, these dissections from an endovascular approach. What is aortic remodeling? I think it's the concept that's been revolutionizing the way we approach aortic dissections in general. I mean, as you know, aortic dissections classically was treated with best medical therapy, with impulse control and blood pressure control. And the idea is that as long as you get rid of that hypertensive spike, you will no longer have preferential flow just going into one or the other. And, you know, you can stabilize the aorta over time. That's not necessarily true. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of, I think we're getting more information and more data that, you know, the long-term consequences of a, even an uncomplicated type B aortic dissection that where you control the blood pressure very well, that they do have, you know, long-term consequences. Dr. Conrad from uh, Mass General back in like 2018, I want to say, you know, I'll, I'll have to take a look back at that year, but from uh, Mass General, they released a publication looking at the predictors of late reinterventions in patients who presented with uncomplicated type B aortic dissection. And the number they came up with was insane. 38%, 38% yeah. of That's patients crazy. with uncomplicated <laughs> type B dissection who get treated with best medical therapy require some sort of late intervention. And majority of the time when they require it, it's for aortic degeneration. So I think mm -hmm. that kind of number is really important. Now, going back to your question, aortic remodeling, and this is kind of why I think you hear about people pushing for TVAR, even an uncomplicated dissection, is essentially you're getting the aorta to go back to what it used to look like so that there is no longer a separate false lumen and a true lumen but eventually the true lumen becomes fused back all the way and gets rid of the false lumen. And the goal, and one of the things that we're recognizing is that you can do that a lot easier in the acute and subacute setting. The more chronic that you get, it becomes much harder to remodel the aorta because it's already started to remodel in this dissected state. Got it. Got it. And then, you know, of the, I guess we can go into, of the TVARs that you performed in your practice, how many go on to this having perfusion to this false lumen that you need to end up treating? I guess the other way to ask that question is how many of the patients who get a TVAR in the subacute phase come mm -hmm. for their follow-up scan and they're completely yep, remodeled exactly. back to their normal? And that number isn't that high. You know, I think yeah. you'll probably see less than, you know, 15% of patients who will have completely remodeled their aorta back to the way that it was pre-dissection. And a big reason for that is that, you know, even if you cover the entry tear, the, the goal of TVAR is to cover the entry tear and to depressurize the false lumen. If the dissection is one that extends beyond the renal visceral segment, you still have a mm. lot of 
pressurized connections between the true and the false lumen. You know, I'll go back and add the caveat. If it was an isolated thoracic dissection where the start point and the end point of the dissection is in the thoracic aorta, those remodel beautifully. You know, the, you've got yeah. your T-var is covering a lot of the fenestrations and the entry tear between the true and false lumen. It becomes depressurized and it will, you know, close down over time. Right? So it, it varies from aorta to aorta, depending on how much, you know, fenestrations you have downstream. Yeah, exactly. How far that you know, dissection goes down. That's totally true. These patients, you know, you talked about follow-up. How often are you following up with CTA and what's the, what makes you go and then decide to treat this false lumen, to, to treat the perfusion? Our typical follow-up after a TVAR is one month, three months, six months, and a year. And, you know, the reason why we did the TVAR in the first place varies from the initial indication for the TVAR varies pretty substantially. I think we've gotten a little bit more aggressive with our indications for the initial TVAR. When we're talking about uncomplicated type B patients, you know, we, we're doing these TVARs because we see a very large entry tear greater than 10 millimeters. We're doing it for patients who have refractory hypertension or refractory pain despite admission and control of their blood pressure. Any diameter greater than the four millimeters, uh, uh, sorry, 40 millimeters, four millimeters would be a pretty small aorta. <laughs> That'd be so, pretty small. <laughs> yeah. So total aortic diameter greater than 40 millimeters, a false lumen diameter that's bigger than like 25 millimeters. These are the kind of patients that we would think about doing a T-VAR in the first place. And when we bring them back, we're looking for changes in the aortic diameter to begin with. So greater than five millimeter growth in the aorta okay. be in between scans. Those are ones that we're concerned that this is, if you left them alone, they're going to go on to degenerate into this, this into a bigger aneurysm. And, and these same high-risk features you're talking about, do you, do you treat all per, like, uh, patients that have perfusion to the false lumen on their follow-up? Do you decide that I'm going to treat all of them? Or are there specific high-risk features, just like you mentioned, that you will then decide to treat those? No. For the, so just to clarify between the two, for the follow-up, um, when they're coming back for their follow-up and their imaging, we don't actually have good criteria for when you should intervene. I think currently I'm using growth of the aorta, a growth of overall aorta is my indication. Greater than five millimeters is what I'm using as my indication to treat the false lumen. If you can identify major fenestrations that you can cover with distal extension of vertebral or something like this, that's someone that we would consider. But it's a case-by-case -case basis. It's hard to come up yeah. with like a overall criteria for intervening on the false lumen. Yeah, it's tough. You know, that, that's uh, exactly what I, was, what I was getting to. And, you know, I think using the aortic size growth I mean, it, logically speaking, that kind of makes sense. It says that the, whatever the T-bar has been doing is not working, so you need to do something more. Now, about approaches to treatment, we'll, we'll first cover any surgical. Do, is there any kind of open surgical treatment or you prefer to treat these from an endo approach? Open surgical treatment makes sense for people who are younger, I think. You know, okay. when we're talking about, so those, we're talking about chronic dissecting aneurysms um, and mm -hmm. oftentimes with thoracal abdominal aneurysms for patients who can tolerate it still arguably a gold standard approach for it because the endovascular options for a chronic dissection as of now still are not as good for, you know, compared to TVAR for a subacute dissection even. So the gold standard is still open. So if the patient has a right risk profile and they're degenerating their aorta, and they can tolerate an open thoracic repair, that's still the gold standard. And we'll do that in conjunction with CT surgery often. But a lot of the patients are not because oftentimes after their dissection, this isn't something that, you know, presents 
over a couple years, these patients will come back several years after their initial dissection and have a large aneurysm with a big septum that endo option, while they do exist, they're not great. So, you know, a lot of these patients end up getting treated endo. Speaking of endo, what's, what's give, I'll just kind of put the ball in your court. What's your, you know, preferred method of, of doing a, a false lumen repair. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to put a big caveat out there that none of this is like a good gold standard practice by any stretch of the imagination. And the thoughts, when you think about shutting down false lumen flow, it's with the thought that there's a paper from Conway, uh, Dr. Alan Conway looked at like a VQI study where he looked at TVARs for chronic dissections. He looked at 125 patients with chronic type B dissections. Average age was around 65 and they did re remarkably well, 2.4% mortality risk, 0.8% stroke risk. But the number that I really want to point out is sac shrinkage of greater than five millimeters following the TVAR intervention uh, occurred in only about 28% of the patients. And the extent of aortic wall coverage, meaning like how far did you go down yeah. into the aorta with the TVAR was not actually associated with sac shrinkage. Really? Yeah. So interestingly, this goes back to the whole, you know, what is perfusing that false lumen? Is it fenestrations at, at your aorta above the celiac artery or are there connections more distal to that? So when we're treating the false lumen, specifically, we're talking about patients who have a dilated aortic segment in the thoracic aorta with persistent flow into the false lumen, but like their abdominal aorta is relatively normal. You know, those are the patients that you're thinking about treating with some sort of technique. And the goal of false lumen treatment is to thrombose the false lumen because one of the indicators that's going to help you protect against aneurysmal degeneration is false lumen thrombosis. So you're trying to achieve thrombosis by treating it through one of two techniques. And it completely depends on the imaging. If you're looking at the CAT scan and you're looking at your TVAR that's already in place, or you're looking at the true lumen. And there's a segment of aorta that looks like it's relatively normal in size. Mm -hmm. I think those are the patients who would, you know, be treated very well with the Knickerbocker technique. Those are the patients where you think at this one portion of the aorta, I can blow off the stent, uh, a stent graft a little bit bigger. So you can provide some sort of physical barrier so that there's less flow going into the false limit. So any kind of pinch point or narrowing of the aorta before it gets down to the aorta, uh, the abdominal aorta, those are patients that I think do remarkably well for the Knickerbocker technique. Just for our listeners, Knickerbocker technique is, you know, when you have a stent graft extending from the start of the intimal tear to some portion of the aorta, most often right above the celiac artery. And the idea is that you're going to use a balloon to selectively rupture that dissected septum so that you can get contact of the stent graft now with the actual other side of the aorta. And by doing that, you're creating a physical barrier so that blood won't retrograde filled into the thoracic aorta anymore. This is a technique that's still probably used pretty often in Europe. I think you hear about a lot of physicians from Hamburg who still routinely do Knickerbocker techniques and they don't use standard stent grafts anymore. They have a specific stent graft design for this where Oh, really? Yeah, where they yeah. have a bulbous section of the stent graft. Meant to be dilated. Exactly. So they have, it's not a tubular linear uh, stent graft anymore, but like there's one area that uh, is more bulbous so that you can dilate it at that certain point. We don't have that in the States. So we're still using traditional stent grafts to go ahead and use 
and balloon in the segment that looks like it's a little bit more narrow or we can easily come into contact. This is scary. The first couple of times you do it, it's terrifying to see all of a sudden the stent graft go. Yeah. How much pressure does it take to kind of dilate that stent graft? And you're basically purposely over dilating that graft. And, and for our listeners, again, you're, you're putting a, a stent graft there, distal, you know, cu- overlapping with the prior T-bar and you over dilate it so that it just essentially pushes the flap close and then you create a seal. But I mean, how much pressure does it take to push open that, that graph? It's actually not as bad as you think. Uh, most of the time you're using a, uh, a compliant balloon, like a Reliant or a Coda or one of these balloons that you can use with a hand syringe and you can, you can see it and you're mm-hmm. over dilating it. Remember, this is a segment of aorta where the true lumen is still compressed. That's why you're there. So, you know, the amount of volume that it actually takes is actually not as much as you think. You're not significantly over-inflating. Oftentimes it will help to have access into the false lumen for procedures like this so that after your expansion of the true lumen, then you can check to see whether or not you have reduced flow or cessation of flow across the segment. IVIS will often tell you whether or not your stent graft has good connection of the you know stent graft to the wall or not. So I think you know false lumen studies after the intervention is very helpful in helping you figure it out. A lot of the times you don't have this as an option. I think whenever it presents itself, it's a great option, relatively straightforward and fairly quick and easy to perform. It's scary because, you know, you're creating a unstable aortic rupture in this segment and you have to be prepared for bad things as they come. It has to have, like you said, that, that selection, it has to have a normal segment of aorta above the celiac. Correct. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be normal. It could be a dissection, but it, the diameter of the aorta at that segment has to be somewhat normal so that your stent graft, when you do like it's, it's pointless to do it in an aneurysmal segment, because even if you blew open the septum, if your stent graft's not going to go to the wall, then it's not going to do anything. It has to oppose exactly to, to cut off that flow. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that's called, I mean, what's, why is it called Knickerbocker? I mean, that's a good question. I have no idea. Maybe, maybe you can add that to your show notes about it. <laughs> I'll find out. We'll, we'll, we'll post some pictures. It's actually, it's pretty easy to understand when you see a diagram of it, if in case um, anyone's confused about the technique. What about other types of false lumen embolization? What if I just go up there and throw like coils and Benson wires and stuff? But, you it's know. so tough to do. I mean, so <laughs> the reason, so once again, the goal of this kind of treatment is to thrombose your false lumen. And I will tell you that probably... Some of the earliest attempts of physicians trying to do this were like two amplats or plugs next to each other in the false lumen. You deploy your biggest amplats or plugs, kiss them side by side so they don't move. And then you're going to try to put as much embolic material behind it as possible with coils or something like this. It's the aorta. It's a very high, it's a high flow system. Um, And even though it's going into a blind ending false lumen, because presumably up top you've sealed with your T-var already it can still have pretty significant pressure and high flow through the area. So getting it to thrombose is actually quite difficult. Additionally, the, just the sheer volume, uh, you know, oftentimes we talked about how the false lumen is the one that's pressurized and large. The amount of kind of coils it would take, you're, I mean, yeah. I, guess you're, I guess your rep would love you, but at the same time. A very expensive aorta, um, otherwise known as endotrash. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. People talk about candy plug. That's a, that's another technique. Can you 
Do do you find that helpful? Can you describe it and then tell us where that's helpful or not? I would say that the candy pluck technique is probably the one that we utilize the most often. Oftentimes because we're in somewhat dilated aorta all the way down to, you know, some of these chronic dissections, it's a big aorta kind of all the way throughout. You're trying to find a point where it's relatively more normal in size than the actual thoracic aorta, which might be a big aneurysm. So for example, if you have yeah. a seven centimeter thoracic aneurysm, but around the area of the diaphragm, it looks like it's coming down to four millimeters, the true lumen expanded to about two millimeters. And then you have another, you know, essentially an oblong four millimeter in the long axis and two millimeter, the short axis kind of aorta that you're trying to fill space in. A candy plug basically utilizes a existing T-VAR piece. Uh, and then you're trying to create a pinch point in the middle of that stent graft that you then fill with a amplatzer plug. So it's recognizing that this false lumen is large and will require a larger device, uh, like a thoracic stent graft, but you need to be able to use it as an occlusion plug. So you're, you know, modifying it so that you can put an amplatzer plug afterwards to, you know, make the make the flow stop. A couple of different ways to do it. And the way that we do it, I think is a little bit more straightforward. We'll often use a Cook TX2 stent graft that has, you know, four stent structures. We'll deploy part of it in the back table. Perfect for your podcast name. Back table, yeah. <laughs> so we partially deploy the stent graft and we'll take a 2-0 proline suture and then we'll throw a restricting suture in between the stents. So the stents are, they're, they're not connected in the stent graft. They're free floating stent rings. And then in between there's graft material. So at the area of the graft material, you're throwing a restricting stitch all the way around it. This is where the art of it comes in. You can't make it too tight because you know, your deployment, the system, your, your nose cone that you use to deploy this has to be able to come out of that hole. But that yeah. hole needs to be small enough so that you can put an amplatz or plug in that space afterwards. The physicians from Germany, they do it a little bit differently. They'll actually put in like a iliac limb, you know, a smaller iliac limb yeah. over it. So they'll, they'll uncover the actual T-var. They'll put in like a 12 millimeter short iliac limb oh, and then, and then use that as the restricting suture. Exactly. So rather than throwing the suture into it, they'll just use that as like a restriction point and they'll kind of tie everything back down and then just deploy it as is, you know, I think both can work. I haven't tried the iliac limb approach, but the, I think the, uh, suture method works pretty well. Cheaper. It's cheaper. It's cheaper. <laughs> the goal is to get that stent graft then into the position where you think the aorta is relatively more normal in size or smaller in size. You're going to deploy it and then you still have wire access across that pinch portion and you'll take mm -hmm. an Amplatzer 2 plug, you know, something that's not a single Amplatzer plug, but one that has like one ring that you can deploy beyond this pinch point and then deploy the other rings, you know, more proximal mm -hmm. to it. And then you're done and you get immediate cessation. So, so the nice thing about this kind of candy plug is that, yeah, it's quick. And number two, you get immediate cessation of blood flow, you know, into the false lumen. And it's noticeable on the table when you shoot your completion angios. And uh, it's very effective in kind of shutting everything down. We were talking about the Knickerbocker before. We have to be prepared to do this even in a Knickerbocker case, because if you have some sort of free rupture, then this is your, this is your bailout. Your bailout, right? You, you mentioned you use that, that cook, uh, cuff. I mean, how, what's the largest diameter, you know, that that comes to, there must be a restriction of, of, of a false lumen diameter that you treat. Yeah. I mean, so the question is, so the 
45 to 46 are the, you know, existing stent grafts that exist for the thoracic space. If you're requiring something that's bigger than that, you have to be wondering, should you be putting this into this aneurysmal segment, I guess, right? So, you know, if you're requiring a bigger than 45, you know, millimeter stent graft, that means that the section of aorta that you're placing this into is grossly aneurysmal. So probably should find a different option. But, um, so 47, then how much oversizing, I mean, would you, so you said like a four, you know, you mentioned some sizes before, like a four centimeter aneurysmal segment, you're comfortable treating with this. Yeah. So most of the time you're going to take the long axis because, you know, in dissections, you'll, you will have like, you know, abnormally shaped concentric uh, lumens that you'll see. So you're going to take the long axis because that's kind of what you need to seal and come into contact with. And typically we oversize anywhere between 10 to 30%. Uh, most of the time, okay. closer to the 20 to 30%. Yeah, that's great. I know you're, you're do a lot of complex, you know, fenestrated EVARs. What about extending your TVAR with the fenestrated approach and, you know, say most of the uh, vessels came off the true lumen. Is that something that you do as well to cover more aorta. You mentioned a prior paper where it didn't relate to how much that you cover the aorta, but is this an option? It's not a bad idea. And I think this is why we say in aortic dissections, you have to take things from a case by case basis. It depends on what is keeping that false lumen patent. If it's because mm-hmm. of fenestrations across the renal vessels or the renal visceral segments, what you're suggesting absolutely works because by, you know, placing a fenestrated stent graft and the covered stent into the renal across the false lumen, you can sh- potentially shut down some fenestrations that exist in this space. But if the fenestrations are coming from even lower and there's something pressurizing the false lumen from lower, just extension, pure extension lower down into the aorta doesn't necessarily give you any kind of uh, decrease of flow. You know, Dr. Joseph Lombardi over at Cooper, who has done tremendous work in the aortic space, this is largely why uh, he advocates for using the dissection, the bare metal dissection stent in the mm-hmm. subacute setting, because once again, it's that dissection stent is not meant to be a stent that gives you tremendous radial force, but it acts as a scaffold that allows you to then find these fenestration points going all the way down the aorta and just plug it. And when you plug these fenestrations and you can depressurize a whole false lumen by causing false lumen thrombosis, and you don't necessarily need to take fabric all the way down into the iliac vessels. And that's the petticoat, right? That's the, the petticoat. petticoat. Yeah. How are you plugging the fenestrations? Are you embolizing them or, or, or? Yeah. Most of the time, if it's like a true, like small fenestrations, you can put uh, little septal occluders or you can put small, you know, like amplets or two plugs mm-hmm. through it. And, you know, typically you want to put the shorter end, the one ring and the true lumen, and then the other two rings and the yeah. false lumen and hopefully shut things down in that kind of way. It's easier said than done. I mean, I remember, yeah, I remember when Dr. Really hard. Yeah, I remember <laughs> when Dr. Lombardi was presenting this, I was like, oh yeah, cool. Just go and find these fenestrations. You should be very <laughs> visible on Ivis or very visible on Angio. It's actually very challenging to find every kind of fenestration. And there's a lot, oftentimes there's a lot. Once in a while, you get these cases that you see a gigantic, clear indicator fenestration across the true and false lumen. And then sometimes like magic, you shut that down. The whole false lumen doesn't, doesn't opacify anymore. Really? Yeah. It's, a, it's wow. kind of amazing to see. That's awesome. Well, it seems that between the Knickerbocker and Candy Plug, those are kind of the workhorses of, of treating these. 
we kind of discussed some surgical options and, and, and other things. Any other techniques that you can think of at the top of your head to treat false lumen perfusion? Yeah, we talked about how even the candy pluck technique is a pretty expensive option. Nothing else really kind of jumps to mind, but I think there are ways that you can kind of do a makeshift embolization in areas as small. Like if you have an aorta, area of aorta that looks relatively small, you can still put kissing and plats or plugs and a whole bunch of coils behind it. You know, it's doable and you could definitely do something like that. And in our couple of our early experiences, we did it that way because the patient's access vessels were so tiny that, you know, we felt uncomfortable sending up a stent graft device. Um, you know, okay. those, those are the kind of patients that we would still reserve, you know, this kind of technique for. It sounds like those would be a little unstable. I don't know, move a little bit. <laughs> you get to be right, pretty darn precise there, Dan, but that's, that's why you're a superstar, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I think it's important to state that when we talk about candy plugs and knickerbockers, this is just like salvage techniques that we're talking about. We're talking about not great options for not great patients. And, True. you know, I'm hoping that going forward, it's something that we will, you know, it's something that we definitely need to keep in our back pocket because it's techniques that you'll know how to do because these patients will come. There was a whole group of vascular patients who were treated with best medical therapy only. And you'll, you're going to see a lot of patients come back with these dissecting aneurysms. But going forward, ideally, if like, you know, we can prevent these chronic dissections from happening more and more with appropriate TVAR therapy for uncomplicated type B aortic dissection, it would be ultimately better for patients. Yeah, no, that, that's great. I mean, off the top of your head, I mean, is there any future device, you know, development that you're, that you can even talk about or anything in this, in this, it's a very kind of niche thing. Like you mentioned, it's a, it's a not so great solution to a, a terrible clinical scenario. Yeah, there isn't. You know, the ideal scenario would be where you can take true lumen stent grafts all the way down to the, you know, iliacs. That would be the ideal scenario where you get, no matter where the fenestration is, uh, you will cover all of it by putting stent graft all the way low. The problem with this is, you know, we have a lot of good thoracal abdominal devices that are coming out. You have P branch, you have Tambi, and eventually, and Eventually, we're going to have this off-the-shelf thoracal abdominal aortic devices, which is going to be really great. And they'll address the celiac, address the SMA, address both renals. The problem is that a lot of the times in chronic aortic dissections, the, the true lumen is just so small. And the yeah. ability to put in a, you know aortic stent graft, then have four branches coming off that aortic stent graft, go into all of these vessels, is just very, very difficult to achieve. You know, you may need to knickerbocker your way all the way down in order to get, you know, good stent graft apposition or stent graft expansion in the true lumen. If you take a intravascular ultrasound is absolutely critical. You can't do these mm -hmm. cases without it. And if you take your IVIS catheter into the true lumen in the chronic setting, that thing doesn't move. That thing is like, it just, yeah. it's completely stationary. It doesn't flap around. And sure, when you put in some stent grafts uh, that have some built-in radial force, you might get some expansion of it. But the concern always is that, you know, it might not be as applicable in a chronic dissecting aneurysm because just you don't have space. Yeah. And that, remember, that flap can be this thick leather that's not moving around too. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, um, Dan, thank you. I mean, this is a complex topic, but uh, I think it, it was really nice to kind of delve down 
into, you know, ways to treat it. You know, this is, this is a, a complex disease process. And I think, you know, most of the time, this type of treatment is going to centers like yours that are very adept and, and knowledgeable on these techniques. So we look forward to seeing what more things you guys come up <laughs> with and, and everything. It's, it's really nice having you. Any words, parting wisdom uh, to our listeners? Yeah, you know, I, the biggest caveat here is this is a kind of technique that's meant for a very niche group of patients. This is a very personal topic for me. Uh, my dad had a type A aortic dissection when I was in high school, and he had just a ascending repair back then. Uh, and then he still had like the rest of the aorta dissected from beyond the subclavian all the way down into his iliacs. And, you know, I, I don't know how many old Korean gentlemen you've met, but they are stubborn. They don't take their meds. They don't go to their follow-ups. And, uh, you know, yeah. my dad actually last year during this pandemic ended up having like rip roaring chest pain. We went back and, you know, his blood pressure was all of a sudden out of control again when it was like, you know, well controlled before. And then, uh, his CAT scan showed that his like chest area had grown to like seven centimeters from, Jeez. from just a year and a half ago when he was normal around like four centimeters. So just as a full caveat, as a vascular surgeon who knows all of these different techniques, my dad underwent an open repair with my friend, you know, friend. Uh, Gabriel Deluzo, CT surgeon at Mount Sinai, who did a wonderful repair for him. And it was a tough kind of recovery. It's a big surgery, uh, but yeah. he recovered very well from it. And, you know, when it came to my own family, the option I chose was a, you know, open option. But the caveat behind that was that my dad could tolerate an open procedure and he was healthy enough and other kind of things. But yeah, so as a result, this is a very personal topic for me. And it's something that, you know, we go around talking about at several different conferences, even at cardiothoracic conferences for type A dissections, think about the next kind of thing. You know, these patients should be getting a frozen elephant trunk or elephant trunk procedures, thinking about you know, the next potential procedure for these patients. Because one thing that we realize in these patients is that it's always, you know, you're not one and done. You will see them again and again. Well, Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm glad your dad is doing great. And, and yes, I, I'm, I'm so glad to have you on this topic to talk about aortic dissections and their treatment. So thank you so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed having you on. We're gonna definitely have you on more this year too. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me, Sabi. Really appreciate it. 